Jesus made a shocking statement in Matthew 21 to the religious leaders who were standing around him that day. He said this, The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. What do you suppose he meant by that? One thing's for sure, Jesus used every opportunity he could to illustrate the fact that a sinful person who is aware of their sin always has an edge over a holier-than-thou person who is confident in their own goodness. And in spite of Jesus' obvious affinity for sinful types and his preference to hang out with uh, the people from the wrong side of the tracks, he was also no pushover when it came to speaking forthrightly about the issues of sin. In fact, just before he ascended in John 16, he said this, But I tell you the truth, It is good for you that I'm going away. This is verse 7 and 8 of John 16. It is good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And convict, I think, is the operative word there. The key aspect to the Spirit's ministry is to communicate to us in that way. And the word used is convict. The King James Version, if you, and you, probably, if you can quote that verse, you probably can quote it in the, in the King James. But it uses the word reprove instead of convict. But I don't think reprove maybe is a strong enough word to describe what the Spirit does in that area. Convict is a legal term. And it speaks of a a judicial verdict, as in the accused has finally been convicted. And the Spirit, you see, does not merely accuse men of sin, but he brings us to an inescapable sense of our guilt so that we realize realize our shame and our helplessness before God. The conviction of the Holy Spirit leaves no doubt in a person's mind of what God's saying. And furthermore... The the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not condemnation. Let me say it again. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, it is not condemnation. But when the Holy Spirit is at work convicting us of sin, we're confronted with two things. Don't forget them. We're confronted with the truth of who we are and the truth of who he is. Maybe it's better said the other way around. When the Holy Spirit is speaking into your heart and life, you're, you're very aware of who God is, and you may be painfully aware of who you are. I came across a story of a counselor at a youth camp, which brought back lots of memories for me. This guy had had an exhausting day, and he said the guys in his cabin were fast asleep, and he said, I was dead to the world. And then there came this dim awareness that ants were crawling all over my body. I was so tired and sleep felt so good that I actually resisted rousing myself, he said. I knew that if I were roused even a little bit, I would have to acknowledge that my sleeping bag had become an ant freeway. I didn't want to know the awful truth. So for at least several seconds, I tried to fight it. At some deep level, he said, I told myself that sleep was the reality and the ants were a dream. And you know, when truth comes to us by way of the Holy Spirit, sometimes it can be exactly that way. Truth can be like ants in our sleeping bag. And even though we're aware that they're there, we're so committed to some other realities in our life that we, we tend to act like they aren't. 
we keep trying to ignore it and go back to sleep. Because waking up means that we have to face the reality and see the truth about ourselves and actually do something about what God is saying to us. It may mean that we have to change. You can finish the statement. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And when he's speaking about truth, he's not only talking about the truth of who he is, but he's speaking of the truth of who we are as well. So remember that opening scripture, John 16, 7 and 8. But I tell you the truth, it's good for you that I'm going away. If I don't go, the counselor may not come, will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So you get looking into that in the scripture and you realize that genuine conviction is meant to result in genuine sorrow, which ought to lead to genuine repentance. There's an order to it. Conviction comes to the whole, by the Holy Spirit to us, which when we see the truth of who he is and who we really are, ought to result in genuine sorrow, which hopefully leads to genuine repentance. I think the Living Bible, if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the ninth and 10th verse, it's really a great verse and one that's, that's good to have tucked away uh, in your life. The Living Bible says it good. You may have heard it also in the King James. But it says this, Now I am glad I sent it. This is re- Paul referring to his, his letter of, of reproof to the, to the people. He said, I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurts you, but because the pain turns you to God. It was a good kind of sorrow that you felt. Interesting turn of phrase. It was a good kind of sorrow you felt. The kind of sorrow God wants his people to have so that I need not come to you with harshness. For God sometimes uses sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek eternal life. We should never regret his sending it. But the sorrow of the man who is not a Christian is not the sorrow of true repentance and does not prevent eternal eternal death. Interesting phrase. It was a good kind of sorrow. The King James said it this way, I, Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sor- sorrowed to repentance. A kind of sorrow that led to repentance. This is the, the sixth week of our, of our uh, guardrail series. And uh, hopefully it's been a help. It's been a help to you. We've been focusing on... <clears throat> helping you rise up and identify those places in your life where God's trying to either direct you or protect you. And he does that in a number of ways, but when you begin to try to get those a little bit systematized in your life, they become a, they become a, a way of living that helps you and allows God to, to guide you. And last week, we thought about the issue of convictions, of the place of convictions in your life, of of listening closely enough to God and watching yourself long enough in the Christian journey and responding to life in such a way that you finally get some definition in your life about what God wants you to do or be or say or not do or not be or not say. Some things that for you become true about how you ought to lead the Christian life. Your convictions are not meant to be my convictions 
And my convictions are not meant to be your convictions. But it's vitally important if we're going to succeed in this faith walk that we become people who have some convictions. And I want to cut the S off of that this week and have you think with me about conviction, singular. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, an interesting story there. I invite you to take your book and and turn there if you would. We're going to pick up the reading at the 23rd verse. And the scripture sets the context before it gives this little parable that is, is so memorable. Verse 23 of Matthew 21 says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they, re- they asked, and who gave you this authority? Over in Common Grounds, we've been working through the book of John, and one of the things we've been noticing is how strategic Jesus was about revealing who he was. There were, there were times that he seemed okay with people understanding who he was and who he claimed to be. There were other times you almost, he almost acted like he was, he was trying to keep it a secret. And according to the timing, as his short three-year ministry led up to, to the cross, he, he gradually and strategically began to reveal who he really was. And, and these people were sensing who he was, and they were listening to his statements. And so they were asking him, basically these guys were saying, they were, they were wanting Jesus to incriminate himself by what he said. Here's what Jesus did. He replied, I'll also ask you a question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Here's his question, verse 25. John's baptism, where did it come from? And John, he's referring to as John the Baptist, who who came before Jesus, was announcing the fact that Jesus was coming into the world and kind of pointing the way and saying, he's the man, he's the son of God. So he asked them the question, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it of human origin? And they discussed it among themselves. And they say, if, if, if we say it was from heaven, he'll ask us, then why, don't you, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it was of human origin, we're afraid of the people because they all hold that John was a prophet. So they said to Jesus, we don't know. And then Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. But he did give a parable. And in verse 28, he, he dove in. He said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. What are we talking about this morning? We're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, to speak into our lives, to direct us and convict us. And Jesus said that the people who were more closely connected with their sin appeared to have a 
a better capacity to understand how much they needed God's forgiveness in their life than the people who acted like they didn't need it. And I want to draw two or three things out of this. And we see ourselves in this story. It seems like every time you read the Bible, it, you see yourself reflected in its pages. One son said yes, but didn't obey. The other one said no and did obey. And I want to say, first of all, we are, we are comfortable with the disparity between what we say and what we do. We're not that uncomfortable being the son who said yes and didn't obey. Of the two sons, we tend to be more like the son who quickly acted like he was willing and ready to obey and didn't than we are like the reluctant son who said no and did. We're comfortable with this disparity between what we say and do. We, I'm talking about us, I'm talking about people in this day and age. Christian people in kind of today's culture in the church, we have a weird level of comfort with there being distance between what we say we are and do and what we really are and do. There was a survey done by the American Institute of Architects and uh, they, they, were, they were interested in people's zeal to, uh, to really amp up their backyards. People putting in pools and decks and all kinds of stuff. You see all those shows on television. And... Uh, <clears throat> obviously people putting them in because they want them, but the evidence showed that for all their good intentions, families don't actually spend much time in their backyards. And so this book came out, Life at Home in the 21st Century. This is 2012. And it revealed this in-depth study of middle-class families in the Los Angeles area, and they found it something rather remarkable. They they began to, they put, uh, they recorded these families, their lives, And they found that families actually spent very little time in their backyards. Kids averaged fewer than 40 minutes per week in the yard. And adults logged less than 15 minutes per week in the yard. Here these guys were living in sunny Southern California. They had nice porch furniture. They had trampolines and pools and decks, but they didn't use them. The researchers noted a strange disconnect between belief and action. The families told the researchers they loved their backyard and loved using their backyard, but they didn't use them. Instead, they went inside and turned on the TV or the computer. Here's the deal. They they concluded that people don't like that kind of image of their lives, so they don't acknowledge it. Instead, families perpetuate the illusion of spending time outside because that's clearly the ideal. Now, the, the... the application to our spiritual life is painfully clear there. In our spiritual lives, we thrive on illusion too. We have this way that we like to think about ourselves as far as it comes to you know, our, our personal integrity before God and our zeal for Him and our desire to obey Him. We have this kind of thought about what we would like to think we are, but oftentimes there's a great gap between that and what we really do. 1 Samuel 15:22 and many of you can quote it Samuel said what is more pleasing to the Lord your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice and here's the quote because obedience is far better than sacrifice listening to him is much better than offering the fat 
of rams. One son said, I will, and he didn't. So we are comfortable with this disparity between what we say and what we do. Secondly, oh man, is this huge? We are not comfortable with calling anything wrong. I mean, this is, a, this, is a, this is really, I think, a huge topic these days. We're not comfortable with calling anything wrong. Who's we? Us. People who are following Christ. You know, they say that conscience is divided into two kind of components. There's, the, there's what they call the primary conscience, which is what you're born with. It's your inborn human personality kind of thing. And, and Romans describes it in, in chapter 2, verse 14, or 15, says that your conscience is like a law written on your heart. It's kind of the Bible's way of saying that. That, there, that. that you were born with some senses of right and wrong kind of imprinted on you. It's just kind of, it's there. It's self-evident. There's the primary conscience, and then there's what they call the moral conscience, which is the part of you that needs to be it needs to be helped. It needs to be informed. It needs to, it needs to have, be trained in the process. So the sense of right and wrong is born in the primary conscience, but the standard of right and wrong is trained into the moral conscience. So here's the deal. When you eliminate any objective sense of right and wrong, what do I mean by an objective sense of right and wrong? When you eliminate belief in a holy God who has clearly defined this is right and this is wrong, if you, if you step away from some objective standard of right and wrong, you leave a man only pretty much with his own opinion to guide him. That's called moral relativism, and it's basically people doing what feels right to them. And, and that is the world that we live in, is it not? We live in a world where people kind of are guided by what feels right in their own eyes. I think that's why evangelicals are so messed up in, in our inability to communicate uh, in some of these controversial areas. You, you take the, the, the whole issue today of homosexuality. It's evangelicals, and what do I mean by evangelicals? I mean people, people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It's the holy Word of God that is true. Evangelicals believe that. And we have difficulty sometimes speaking into tough issues. And the reason we do is in our heart of hearts, we do not want to be guilty of being the kind of people who do things as they're right in our own eyes. We, we don't want to be people who don't subscribe to the Bible's standard of right and wrong I'm sorry, we want to be people who subscribe to the Bible standard of right and wrong. We don't want to be guilty of being those people who live their life just do, doing what they feel is right. And so when you hear an evangelical respond to some of these controversial issues today, what they're often trying to get to, that they're trying to say is, look, no matter what I believe about this, no matter what might feel right or feel wrong to me, I'm going to err on going with God and what he clearly defines on this. And I think that's one of the reasons that, that, that we, we're hesitant and, and find it difficult to speak on that because we, we don't want to be there. We don't want to just live according to what feels right to us. We don't want to respond to the difficult issues of life out of our own wisdom. We want to we be on God's side and stand with him in the issue. And, and here we are living in this day when we're very uncomfortable with 
with being pressed to actually say this is right or this is wrong. I heard about uh, this professor in Ontario. He actually, I think, was a high school teacher with a senior class um, that was, that was uh, working on ethics and philosophy. And he wanted an attention getter to kind of launch the discussion about right and wrong. And, and he wanted to kind of form a baseline for this discussion about ethics and ethical decisions. So he, he decided to display the picture of B.B. Asia, and you probably don't recognize the name, but if you saw the picture, you would probably remember it. She was an Afghani teenager who was forced into this abusive marriage with a Taliban fighter, and he, he, uh, he, he beat her and, and abused her and kept her with his animals, and eventually she ran away from the guy, and her family caught her, and they cut off her nose and cut off her ears, and left her for dead in the mountains. And she somehow managed to get to an American base and got into a hospital and came to America. And there were pictures, and you can find them, of this beautiful girl with, with her nose gone. And, and so the teachers wanted to show this picture to launch a discussion about right and wrong. Here's what he said. I was not prepared for the reaction. Some of my students couldn't even raise their eyes to look at the picture, but I could see that they were experiencing deep emotions. I had expected strong aversion, but that's not what I got. Instead, they became confused. They seemed not to to know what to think. They spoke hesitantly, afraid to make any moral judgment. They were unwilling to criticize any situation originating in a different culture. They said, well, we might not like it, but maybe it's okay over there. Another said, it's just wrong for us to judge other cultures. He said, no matter how I prodded, they would not leave their non-judgmental position. I left that class shaking my head. For them, the overriding message is never judge, never criticize, never take a position. And, and the man, uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Anderson, said that he wonders whether our current educational system is, if we're not producing what he called ethical paralytics, people who just err on the side of never coming down on any side. We're not comfortable with calling anything wrong. And then you throw into this soup number three, and I've described it this way, we don't even feel it when, we, when it ought to hurt. What are we talking about? We're talking about the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. We have a, we, we're comfortable with this disparity between what we say and what we do. We're hesitant to call anything right or wrong. And see, we don't even feel it when it ought to hurt. And the Bible does speak about our conscience being seared. We get to the point where the stuff that you would think would trouble us and bother us when the voice of God says this or that to us, but somehow we get to a point where it doesn't even hurt when it ought to. My friend Ron and Chris Bam, his grandson, they were out camping, and his grandson had uh, had a hot dog skewer and he's running around the corner of the tent and he catches his leg on the tent rope and falls and he drives this hot dog thing up into his face and 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 he came he was crying and he came back to them a little boy and you know they were alarmed did it hurt you and there was just a little little scratch there and anyway when they took him to the outpatient and he finally got x-rays this thing had gone up in here and stopped up here you know but but because he pulled it out, he was just kind of unaware of it. I, I, I read about this guy that was working on a roof with, with an air nailer. 
and he had an accident with the air nailer and and he didn't know it but the an, a, a nail launched out of that air nailer and went up inside his tooth and and was protruding four inches up into his head and the guy goes home and asks his wife for a bowl of ice cream because he thought his tooth felt a little funny you know and and, and he was just even though even though he had a wound of that kind the neurosurgeon said it's a pretty rare in- injury, but he said, this is the second one we've seen in this hospital where the person was injured by a nail gun and didn't actually realize the nail had been embedded in their skull. And I wrote down, a wrong diagnosis only leads to a wrong remedy. What are we talking about? We're talking about our ability to, man, be hit by what God is saying to us, and we don't even feel it. We don't even seem to know that it's happened. We, we had a class, it was last spring you guys did the class with Gary Ezzo with, with the, uh, the book. Ken and Margo did a class on parenting and, and the book that they were using kind of as a central resource in that. He talked about the need to establish a moral, he called it a moral warehouse. He said that as you're learning what's right and wrong, you begin to kind of catalog those things and, and you, you stack them away in your moral warehouse. And then when you're faced with something where you're trying to determine what's up with this, what do I do about this? then you have a resource to be able to go in there and pull something off of a shelf and say, well, I can, I can figure out how I ought to think about this because I already have processed it here. In fact, he talked, I, I found this really interesting. He identified four activities of the conscience. And, and the first two of them were pre-activities, what he called pre-activities. The conscience, A, warns you when you're about to do something wrong or it prompts you to do something good. I mean, this is ahead of time stuff. It warns you when you're about to do something wrong, and it prompts you when you're. It prompts you to do something right. I heard about this guy who was a crossing guard, and he was frustrated because people wouldn't slow down at the crossing. I mean, this guy's out there with his stop sign, you know, and people are going by. So he goes. He goes and gets his blow dryer, and he wraps duct tape around the blow dryer, and he stands there like a cop with a radar gun. And he said, for some weird reason, they saw that duct-taped radar gun, and he said the traffic just dropped like that. You know? And, and that's, really, that's really how the Holy Spirit kind of works, in, in the pre-activity of the conscience. God is stepping into our life through his Spirit, and he's saying, man, don't, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't go there. Or... Yes, you need to do this. You, you need to do this. He's pre-prompting you and guiding you and, and, and stepping into your life as this live, in the moment, in the spirit guardrail, ready for you to, to do what he asks you to do. Then he also says there are post-activities of the conscience. And, and that's this. There's two of them. When you do wrong, the conscience convicts you through guilt. Shouldn't have done that. Or, when we did right, it affirms our actions. Good job. So there's the pre-activities of the conscience and the post-activities of the conscience. The post-activities of the conscience kind of catches us after the fact. Chuck Swindoll told this crazy story about this guy who goes into a chicken place, wants to get a bag of fried chicken, he's going to take his girlfriend out for a picnic. So he's ordering this chicken, and 
the manager of the store had just had just uh, emptied the tills and had taken all the cash out of the tills and stuffed the cash, getting ready to go to the bank, stuffed it in a chicken bag. And it's under the counter, and when the clerk serves the guy and gives him his chicken, instead of grabbing the bag of chicken, she grabs the bag of cash by accident and gives it to the guy. He's out with his girlfriend, and they get their picnic all set out, and he opens the bag thinking there's going to be chicken in there. There's 800 bucks in there. He goes, oh, my goodness, something, you know, this, is, this is a mistake. So he goes back to the store and goes in and tells him, look, I know you, this didn't, you didn't mean this to happen, but I've got, I got your money. And the, the, the manager of the store, I mean, he's all over this guy. And he says, you know, this is fantastic. He said, I, I, I can't believe, it's so wonderful to meet an honest person. And he said, I'm thrilled to death. He said, I want to call the newspaper. I'm going to put your picture in the local, local paper. You're one of the most honest men I've ever met. To which the man quickly responded, no, no, don't, don't do that. And he leaned closer and whispered, you see, the woman I'm with is not my wife. She's somebody else's wife. And it is uncanny on the flip side of conscience how God can step into your life and suddenly shine the spotlight on something and say, should not have done that. You really should not have gone there. And I want to I stress with you today, it's very important that you learn to cooperate with the Holy Spirit on both sides of that conscience. You need to learn to cooperate with him on the, on the upside of conscience, on the pre-side. How many of you know that you can, after you're married a while, you can look across the room at your spouse and you can tell if something's wrong? Right? In fact, you can be with them and it's weird, but if they're not saying anything, you can tell a lot about what's going on, right? You just sense it. You know them. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to become in your life. He, he, he doesn't want to have to get out the radar gun and wave you down and all that. He wants just to be able to clear his throat or nudge you. And, and on the pre-side of the conscience, to, for you to develop the ability to listen to him. And that's important. That's important. But it is vital on the post side of the conscience that when the Holy Spirit comes along and says to you, you goofed, you sinned, you, you, that should not have happened. If it's important to learn to, to walk with him and work with him on the pre-side, it is urgent to be the kind of believer who is quick to listen to God on the post side when he convicts you. I used to listen to Focus on the Family, and the guy's name was Mike Trout. I used to love the way he would interview Dr. Uh, I'm losing his name. Dr. Dobson. Thank you. And Mike Trout, his marriage broke up, and he had an extramarital affair, and Jay Leno said, quipped about that and said, perhaps Mike Trout had focused on the wrong family. And I say that to say this. Those kinds of, no matter who you are or, or where you work or how high you are or what kind of a believer you are, we are all subject. It's, it's, we, it, the possibility is always there for all of us to fall and to fail. And success comes by being the kind of believer who, whether God's warning us on the, on the pre-side 
or reproving us and convicting us on the post side that we're ready to say yes to God. To ignore his warnings and promptings or convictions is a bad, bad thing in our life. The team's going to come out and I, I share one more uh, scripture with you that you're, you're pretty familiar with. If you haven't read any good novels lately, go read The Life of David in scripture because it's just an amazing story. And you know the, the big story with David of how he falls into lust, temptation leads to lust, and he commits adultery with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And then in order to cover that up, arranges the murder of Bathsheba's husband in the final analysis. And, and then he, he brings Bathsheba into his palace and he moves on with life and he's still the king. And in 2 Samuel 12, 1, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David. And, and this is what Nathan said to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. The little sheep was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had just come to him. Instead, He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who would come to him. David's anger, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And I thought, man, those, what are they, four words? That's like, that's a great picture of how sometimes the Holy Spirit just comes to us and pushes his thumb into our heart and says, you're the man. You, you're the one who has missed the mark, got off track, left or right. And I want to say to you that This issue of having convictions or being under conviction is a beautiful thing. It's it's not something that you ought to feel like this yoke, this heavy yoke upon you. You know, oh, God's up there and he's got these binoculars out and he's looking at my life and he's, you know, ready. That is is so far from the picture that's, that's revealed in Scripture. Just imagine what it feels like to have the God of the universe actually speak into our life and, and guide us and encourage us and convict us and, and help us. It's an unbelievably awesome thing. And as tough as that was for, for David, when Nathan put his finger in David's face and said, you are the man, it's tough for us sometimes when the Holy Spirit of God says, hey, we got to talk about this. You've got you to change this. You've got to man up on this. You've got to confess on this. You've got to repent on this. I don't know what it is he may be saying to you, but I want to tell you it's a beautiful thing. There are times when, when you're in the light of God's will and you get sidetracked and you step over here and suddenly you're out of the light of God's 
pleasure and his will and you're in darkness. There are other times when, when you're in the light of God's will and he's trying to lead you and he moves the light. And when the light goes over there, suddenly you're in darkness and God's saying, I need you to step into the light. And that's what, that's what learning to live within the guardrails of, of the Holy Spirit's daily, moment-by-moment work in our spirit is all about. And I share this with you today because I know that there are, there are a couple of categories of people. Or there are probably people here today, undoubtedly, that, that you've never come to the place where you've responded to the sense of conviction that you feel for your sin in your life. God is saying to you, you are, you're a sinner. And without my forgiveness in your life, you, you, you have no hope of heaven. And you need, to, you need to receive my forgiveness. And that's called conviction. It's a beautiful thing. It's the Spirit of God trying to reach out to you and draw you to himself. And there are other people, probably scores of us here this morning, who in one area or another, God is nudging, pushing, <laughs> hammering. I don't, know what, I don't know where he's at with you, but he's trying through the voice of his Holy Spirit to convict you or to convict me and say, you need to take action on this. You've, you've missed the mark. You've stepped off of my plan for you. Whether he's warning you or reproving you or what he's doing in your life, my recommendation to you today, I plead with you today, is to be the kind of man and the kind of woman that, that is so grateful for God's voice in your life that when he speaks, your answer is to step up and listen and respond to what he has to say. Let's stand together.